Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights virtual service. Today is Palm Sunday when we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And for a moment, we see the excitement of the crowds gathered at the city gate, waiting in eager anticipation. Don't know if you've ever waited for someone famous, a public figure to arrive somewhere, perhaps a musician at a concert, an actor, an author, a political figure perhaps, some leader you admire, and you're filled with anticipation. Perhaps you talk with the people around you because they share your excitement. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? When everyone is there for the same reason, this will be a shared experience that will live on in your collective memories. And you'll always be able to say, well, I was there when. And so we see the crowds waiting at the gates filled with anticipation and excitement, talking to each other, that they, they get impatient. He's here, no, no, that's not him, false alarm. But eventually there's a crush and the crowd pushes forward. Everyone wants to get as near as possible. They want to see, they want to hear, and they cheer and they throw their cloaks onto the ground and they break palm branches off the trees and they wave them and they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In a book called The Last Week, authors John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg explained that there were actually two dramatic processions that would have entered Jerusalem at roughly the same time in anticipation of the crowds gathering for the Passover feast. So which do you wanna to see today? If you go over to this side of town, you'll see Pilate leading his military procession from his base in Caesarea Maritima. With all of the pomp and pageantry and military might of Rome on display, flags flying, armor, weapons glinting in the Middle Eastern sun. Their mission? To reinforce the garrison in Jerusalem. A clear statement had to be made to the throngs, the crowds assembling for the Passover celebration. Look, this is Caesar's world. Caesar is in charge here, so behave. From the opposite direction, coming from the Mount of Olives, if, if we go over to that side of town, we will see Jesus and his followers approaching the city. Pilate on a war horse, but Jesus on a donkey. And not just a donkey, but a colt, the foal of a donkey. So his feet may have actually been touching the ground as he rode. Pilate's procession embodied the power, glory and violence of the empire. Jesus' entry was about the kingdom of God. So as there is this sort of confrontation with Rome and the Roman powers, that was inevitable and would be worked out as Jesus stands on trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. But there's a twist here. On Palm Sunday, Jesus is connected with royalty, as Mark has been doing throughout his gospel, but this time it has a very specifically Jewish ring to it. Listen again to what the crowds shout. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting and crying out about the Jewish Lord and God. The kingdom 
of our father David. They're connecting Jesus to the archetypal Jewish king. The crowd's cheers tell us that this confrontation is actually not just with Rome, but Jesus is about to confront Israel's political leadership as well. And Jesus doesn't disappoint. As soon as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he goes and does something that is as symbolically powerful as his entry into Jerusalem and, and, and the contrast that makes with, with Pilate's entry into Jerusalem. This time he makes his confrontation with Israel's leadership very clear by going to the center of their, their leadership and goes into the temple and he turns over the tables in the temple. We have to understand that the temple ordered the political, not just the religious, but the political life of Israel as well. After the Roman governor, the high priest was the most powerful individual in occupied Rome, in occupied Palestine. The high priest controlled the governing body of the temple and the high council of the Sanhedrin. The 70 members of the Sanhedrin, a sort of um, supreme court or, or sort of parliament, if you will, were, were drawn largely from the chief priests, the Sadducees, some Pharisees and scribes. All of them were, were closely connected to the temple. This was the center of Israel's political life. But we must also understand that the temple ordered their economic life as well. In fact, groups that were really hostile towards the temple focused on the economic dimension of the temple system. They saw a corrupted temple, mainly because it was compromised by greed, that the people running the temple had piled up money and wealth by plundering the people and taking their lands. When Jesus bursts into the temple, he's confronting the political and economic forces that were in collusion with the religious forces and which divided their nation. That's an important word, oppressed and divided. Or perhaps we should say oppressed by dividing, oppression through division. Perhaps we can relate. We have an economic system where the government and corporations sort of merge the government sort of puts out this huge safety net and says to the big corporations, doesn't matter what you do, we'll catch you if we fall. What we're here with taxpayers' money, we'll catch you if we fall. But it's gone further than that. In, in some sense, our government is owned by these corporations and the political class are servants of the oligarchs. This is why the money just keeps on flowing upwards. This is why the power just keeps on flowing upwards. And it also seems that the more extreme amounts of money and power that flow upward, the more sharply divided our nation becomes. Oppression and division, or oppression through division. We all know the phrase divide and conquer. It's just we think that that's what happens to well other people. It's not what happens to us. I mean, we would know if it was happening to us, wouldn't we? Well, how would we know when actually what the majority of people do is we, we to dial into those voices that constantly reinforce the fact that our divisions are in fact based on profound, real, unbridgeable differences between good and evil. But it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting. If you listen to people on the so-called left, and I've been doing that for a very long time, and you listen to people 
on the populist right. And they actually start to sound like each other. And, and I've got a few friends who have actually been working quite hard at this themselves, and, and they've been noticing the same thing. It's no longer about liberals versus conservatives or Republicans versus Democrats or left versus right. Those old divisions are fast becoming more and more irrelevant. As I listen to people on the populist left, you know, I've been listening to people over the years like Robert Fisk, John Pilger, Robert Blum, Noam Chomsky, Glenn Greenwald, Jimmy Dore. These are all sort of would be classed as liberal left wing commentators. On the right, I've been listening to people like Steve Bannon and Raheem Kassam. And oh, why would you listen to those far right racist extremists? And if I was in Texas or a more conservative part of the country, they might be saying something like, oh, why are you listening to those loony left communists? But here's my recommendation. Every week, however much time you spend listening to one side, make it a rule where you'll devote an equal share of time listening to or reading the other side. Because I promise you, it's amazing what you'll, you'll discover. For example, Jimmy Dore on the left says that $600 checks were just an insult to working class Americans during this pandemic. They didn't hesitate to pass a $760 billion war chest. That was immediate, just like that. But they can't get together and decide on a check to help working class Americans. He said, look, what we need to do is send $2,000 checks to every American. Well, guess what? Steve Bannon, says exactly the same thing. And then on the right, Raheem Kassam and Steve Bannon on the right are saying things like bring home the troops and stop these endless bloody foreign wars. We don't want any more wars, not with in the Middle East, not with China, not with anyone. Over and over they say this. And then I go and listen to Glenn Greenwald and Jimmy Dore on the left and they're saying exactly the same thing. Then Jimmy Dore on the left brings up the persecuted mi minorities and says, look, we should care about these persecuted minorities. And then on the right, Steve Bannon talks about persecuted minorities of every race and every religion all over the world. And he talks about it incessantly. And he says, we should care about this. And there are numerous other vitally important issues where people's lives are at stake, where it's a matter of human pain and human suffering, the stuff that actually matters. And guess what? The right and the left agree. In, in fact, I could, I could give you a list of things said by each of these people, and you would not be able to tell me who said what, because there is this fundamental agreement between them. And what I'm hearing, not from the mainstream establishment media and establishment politicians who are mostly tribalists, you know, if, if, if they are doing something, it's wrong. If we're doing something, the same thing, well, it's right because we're doing it. By and large, the issues are secondary and they care more about which team you're on. It's just tribalism. But if you ignore the permanent political class and the corporatist media, and listen to what might be termed more populist left and populist right, they are themselves actually starting to notice how more and more of their interests actually meet. The people we think are our enemies are actually not.
our enemies. The nation of Israel was divided by their own permanent political class between the Pharisees on the one hand and the Sadducees on the other. The nation was divided, being torn apart, pulled by these different groups, vying for power, tribalizing the nation. But Jesus doesn't align himself with either side. Oh, they tried to get him to choose a side. They want him to nail his colors to the mask. Whose side are you on? They, they do it over and over again. They set these traps for him. But instead, he goes straight to the sacred temple, to this hallowed ground. He goes to the very heart and center of their political, economic, and religious institutions. And he starts turning over tables. And he shouts, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, if you want to get a sense of the outrage and fear that filled the establishment and so many in Israel society in that moment, then you need to understand that Jesus was making an attack on the very center of political and financial institutions of Israel. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not drawing a moral equivalence between the actors here, you understand. But think about how everyone felt when our institutions were attacked, when, when Congress was attacked, everyone gasped. And no, it wasn't because of the violence, because it didn't come out that people were killed until afterwards, that, that tragedy. But in the moment, everyone gasped, because these are meant to be the hallowed grounds of our institutions that bring stability to the nation. We don't want those institutions messed with. Well, that's how the permanent political class of Israel felt when they saw Jesus burst into the temple. He's not just turning over tables. This is an extremely dangerous thing to do because we all know that the institutions bring stability to our society. So you understand, you cannot possibly have judgment passed on the political and economic center of Israel in such a public way and let Jesus get away with it. Of course, he had to be executed. But Jesus' hope was never in the political leadership of the nation or in the purity of their institutions. He knew how corrupt they had become. And he publicly declared it through his action in the temple and through his prophetic words. You remember, he predicts that not one stone would be left on each other. Remember, his disciples are admiring the building of the temple. And he says, no, not one of these stones will be left on the other. And within little over of three short decades, it was gone. The temple was raised to the ground. But Jesus was calling his disciples to become a community that would outlive and outsurvive their political class and the political machinery of Israel. He was calling them to be a community that would, out, that would outlive their political, economic, and religious institutions that would outlive their temple. He was calling them to be a community that would outlive the nation state of Israel and even outlive the vast empire that was oppressing them. And so I'll leave us with this question. Can we look at our community and do we get a sense that our community is building toward that kind of enduring legacy?
or are we wrapped up with the divisions and, and antagonisms of our day? Are we living out the kind of relationships with each other that have the potential to outlive and outlast our political class, our institutions, our nation state, our empire? Well, I'll tell you what, the first characteristic of such an enduring community is to get past the establishment tribalism. Our, politi our political leaders and, and corporatist news media and the oligarchs they serve, for the most part, they can only think tribalistically, that they thrive on tribalism. But Jesus is calling us to get past the tribalism and learn to be together. In the spirit of Jesus' confrontation with the powers that be, as we enter Holy Week, as we remember Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem, may we learn to be with each other and for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.